Okay, so I am here with Eric Kandel, who is most recently the author of The Age of Insight. Eric, how are you doing? I'm doing very well, thank you. You point out quite early on in this book that there was uh, something about the liberal intellectual spirit in Vienna, 1900, that permitted all these fascinating interdisciplinary possibilities. You have uh, the Vienna School of Medicine, which becomes this vital part of culture for Viennese artists and intellectuals. You have Klimt, who's studying biology informally with Berta Zuckerkandl, Zuc 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 and he also has these amazing three panels that he does for the University of Vienna, as you point out, rejected for being too radical, too pornographic, and too ugly. So just to start things off here, and we'll get into the science in a bit, what specific factors do you feel allowed this golden age of collisional ideas to happen? I mean, from the vantage point of the 21st century, what lessons can neuroscience and biology take away from this really flourishing period? Uh, I think what was really so important is, as you pointed out, there was an interaction between science literature and arts that was really unusual. Yeah. And it began with the School of Medicine, which had great leadership at that time, under the leadership of a guy called Rokotansky, who, who introduced modern scientific medical practice by developing clinical pathological correlations to a more systematic way than it ever been. He felt that when you listen to a patient's heart, and you hear an abnormal sound, you don't know which valve it's coming from or exactly what is the disorder of the valve. And so he collaborated with a clinician and the clinician described the patient's sounds from the heart and the lungs very in great detail, but um, if the patient died, they collaborated together to do an autopsy on him to figure out exactly what valve was involved and how. And that gave rise to sort of the scientific medicine we now practice. And Rokotansky realized that the truth is often hidden from the surface. Yeah. And you have to go deep below the skin to get there. And that is a metaphor that influenced Freud, that influenced Klimt, that influenced all of these people. That surface appearances are misleading. Uh, they were also influenced by Darwin. And we realized that humans are wonderful creatures, but they evolve from simple animal ancestors, and we have instinctual drives that we share with other animals. And Freud picked this up, he was sort of the Darwin of the mind, and realized that when human beings interact, they interact through surface appearances. There are a lot of processes that are hidden from them, the unconscious mind, which he really developed in great detail. And these ideas were also picked up by the artists. They, in part, influenced by Freud, but in part, on their own. So Freud had a very good understanding of many aspects of the human mind, but didn't understand female sexuality at all. Klimt had a very profound understanding of female sexuality, and in his drawings of women, which are absolutely just marvelous, he depicts women having their own independent sexual life, masturbating, pleasuring themselves without the presence of a man, without feeling obligated to look out at the viewer as if that was the necessary thing for satisfying them. They could have their own fantasy life. Um, and also that eroticism can be fused with aggression as in a very famous painting of Judith and Holofernes. So he had tremendous insight into human psychology. This was carried further by Kokoschkin Schiele, two of his disciples, if you will, uh, Kokoschka focused 
this self-analysis on himself, this analysis on himself, showed how his own unconscious processes were uh, recruited, realized that you could depict adolescent sexuality. He was the first artist to depict adolescent female nudes, pointed out sexual struggles between you know, really young children. He has a very famous painting of the Stein children, a brother and sister, in which there was, you know, both aggressive and erotic components involved in their interaction. And then finally, Shealy, who studied himself almost exclusively, uh, using himself as an object for exploring unconscious mental processes. So it's an extraordinary period. Sure. Well, let's talk about Egon Schiel. Uh His self-portraits in the book, many of which expressed, as you were saying here, this eroticism, this anxiety. In the case of self-portrait with striped armlets, uh, it depicts him as a fool. <laughs> he depicts himself as a fool. So his anxiety may very well evoke this fear in the beholder or the viewer. But there's a difference between what Scheele experienced and what he chose to express. So it's possible that he may have exaggerated or distorted oh, his no, own feelings. No, no question about this. Yeah. I mean, I think what he tried to depict is the existential anxiety of modern man. Yes. Uh, and he depicted this in a lot of artificial ways in order to bring them out. He was very much influenced by Charcot yeah. and the postures that people could, you could assume while under hypnosis, and he actually, he, you know, postured in order to convey these emotions. And also, he was shocking. He painted himself masturbating in the yeah. mirror, yeah. Uh, in order to make clear that, you know, no emotion is alien to him, and is willing to share that with the beholder. Well, if a painting is a buffer between the artist and the beholder, how do scientific developments account for what the artist withholds or decides to distort? I mean, or what the beholder might in fact misinterpret or be tricked into interpreting, as there are many illusions in this book well, too. You know? uh, this is of course true. I mean, uh, the, the sign of a great painting is its ambiguity. Yeah. It allows you and me to bring different things to bear on it. And depending upon our relative sophistication on a particular subject or particular sub-subject, we would interpret it in different ways. Uh, so I think this is part of the greatness of arts, that it allows different people to bring their own experiences to bear on it in an individualistic way. The key element in assessing the relationship between art and neuroscience, again, is the beholder. Now, Seymour Zicke has argued that the Kinesia Triangle, where we see these three... These illusionary countries, yeah. they're not there. Yeah. We make them up. And, I mean, Zeki, of course, one of the pioneers in visual yeah. perception, is an ideal position to point out that the brain is a creativity machine, which art historians in Vienna 1900 began to appreciate. Yeah. That we don't reproduce in our head what we see in the outside world. And it's not a detailed reproduction. We reconstruct it, we take it apart, and we build it together again. So the beholder undergoes a creative process that parallels what the artist undergoes, yeah. uh, which is quite an amazing set of insights. Well, and that Zeke experiment is one example of the beholder uh, responding to cues. Zeke also discovered in another experiment that no matter what type of art was presented to the subjects, the same areas of the prefrontal cortex are going to light up. So if the biology of beauty, as you write, has varied very little 
uh, over the centuries and also across cultures. My question to you is, why are these cues and our biases so universal? I mean, how does the brain distinguish between, say, Klimt and, say, Hopper? Well, it, it clearly sees different forms, but yeah. that does not mean that those two painters can't evoke certain common sure. responses. And what you're seeing is the common responses. There are also distinctive elements uh, sure. between the two. Sure. Uh, well, I mean, what, so what? there's a loneliness that Hopper depicts that you never yeah. see in Klimt. Yeah. Yeah. You are very precise when speculating upon Klimt's Judith and its effect on the brain. You write that the gold hue, the soft body, and the colors trigger the release of dopamine, and that Judith's sadistic gaze might release norepinephrine. And this demonstrates that art has an effect on neuro neuroscience. But it also seems to imply that this connection is almost a one-directional flow. I mean, in light of E.O. Wilson's hope for unity between biology and humanities. In consideration of the impact that Freud's idea have had on the Viennese secession, I'm wondering how 21st century neuroscience uh, has an effect on art in the other direction. Uh, you mean how uh, neuroscientists are likely to influence the arts? Exactly. Right. Anything as, on the as, level as, of as, how as, they influence as, Vienna. As, yeah. as, as you pointed out, it's very easy to see how art influences science. Yeah. Neuroscientists consider it as one of the great aspirations of the field is to understand how we respond to works of art, how artists work, how creativity takes place. What is the, what can art historians and artists take away from neuroscience? Well, Leonardo da Vinci spent a lot of time dissecting human bodies when he was interested in getting a realistic depiction of human form, of people walking, of just how the various bones go together in order to form the body, and he learned an enormous amount by studying anatomy. So the hope is that as we know more about the biology of creativity, we know more about perception, we will excite artists to think about new art forms that bring, may bring those things out even more effectively. Also, if they learn what are the kinds of stimuli that really turn on different regions of the brain, they might be able to play upon their skills to bring out those things even more. So one would hope this would be a dialogue that would go in both directions yeah. um, and have some impact on art as well. Well, how does it go uh, from art to neuroscience as opposed to neuroscience to art? What, this is what really what I try to do. Yeah. We could try to put together a neural circuit of what are the components in the brain that have to be recruited to get the beholder's response uh, to, to a work of art. Uh, we can see from different disease states they affect different components. For example, I focus on portraiture in this book. Uh, there's a whole region of the brain that is concerned with face representation. If you have a disorder of that, you have prosognosia, face blindness. Uh, there's another area that is involved in theory of mind, empathy, sure. understanding that another person has a mind of their own. If you interfere with that, you have autism. People have difficulty with the beholder's chair. They have difficulty with theory of mind. There's an area that is concerned with mirror neurons, cells that respond when you make a motion, in addition to responding when I make a motion, those are involved in sort of simulations that we undergo. So we can learn a lot from those kinds of sure, things. Sure. Um, since you brought up Leonardo earlier, I feel I should also bring up Freud's essay, Leonardo da Vinci and a Memory of His Childhood, which you bring up in the book. Uh, he writes this in 1910. This is one of Freud's efforts to link art and science. But as you point out, Freud did not take into account the beholder's response, uh, nor did he really know much about art history. So 
if Freud's Leonardo essay doesn't really represent his best thinking, as you say, I'm wondering how it led the way for the Viennese art historians that followed. I mean, Regal, who you bring up, he makes this critical splash with his ideas about external coherence, uh, the beholder recognizing other people's facial expressions, among other things. What is the explicit impact that, uh, that he has had on psychologists and neuroscientists? Freud. Freud, yes. Um, uh, in, let's, in, in just in the area of art history alone, Freud's essays on Michelangelo and Leonardo are entertaining, but they're fiction. I mean, he tried to analyze the artist. Yeah. There was not enough material to, to do a, a useful uh, sort of historical uh, psychoanalysis. Uh, moreover, without a person being alive and you're talking to them, you can't get terribly instructive information. Um, but people like Ernst Chris and Ernst Gombrich, who were outstanding art historians, were influenced by Freud, yeah. and you could use their more rigorous artistic approaches to try to make a science out of the beholder share, which they did. Uh, moreover, Freud had an influence on many other people, uh, some of them just advancing psychoanalytic thought, and certainly modern cognitive psychology comes to a very great degree out of Freud. So he has been, in some ways, matured and superseded in certain areas, but his impact has been enormous in psychology. An artist not being alive to absorb his biographical details, that seems like every artist's worst nightmare. <laughs> um, you know, how, how important are biographical details in understanding this, this relationship between art and science? Well, I mean, I don't think it's necessary to have the artist's biographical detail to understand the relationship between art and yes. science, but if you want to psychoanalyze the artist, you got to have him present to work. That if you want to psychoanalyze the work of art, if you yes. want to say you don't need the artist. Yes. I mean, it helps to have him, but you can look at the art. It stands as an end in itself, because the artist realized he's not going to be standing next to that portrait for the next 400 years to explain it to people who walk by. Yeah, yeah. I guess this only applies to artists sometimes in their lifetime. They can actually right. approach That's them right. at the gallery. Um, when you compare Kokoschka's *The Wind's Fiance* to Shields' *Lovemaking*. You point out that the stylistic differences convey different emotional content. Now, later you point out with uh, Death and the Maiden by Scheele that functional MRI has revealed that the brain's response to the entire body is a bit stronger than when it just sees a the response face. to the hands. Right. Yes. So if Scheele is also exaggerating the details with his paintings, how do we distinguish between body portraits and exaggerated portraits and understanding how the brain sorts out this emotional content? Well, there are different areas in yeah. the brain that respond to faces, that respond to bodies, that respond to bodily movements. So you're recruiting different parts of the brain that process the information in different ways. They recruit different emotional states. So the, the constellation of activities in the brain that are recruited are different for the two situations. Yeah. Well, like what portions of the brain would be likely to respond to exaggeration and what would be likely to respond to, say, the hands? I mean, what's the overlap here? How do we pinpoint what regions are the right ones? There the is cortex? an area in the inferotemporal cortex that responds to the faces. You knock it out, you have face blindness. If you record from those areas, so if you're doing imaging experiments on monkeys and you show them a face, there are six patches that light up. Those patches, almost all the cells respond to faces. If you exaggerate the face, the cells respond even more. So you can see the expression this artist picked up 
the importance of this. In some ways, we already knew this from caricatures, and the artists must have known that. You respond much more powerfully to a caricature of Obama than yeah. of a photograph of him or of any major political leader. Uh, so there are these areas that respond to, to faces. They respond to exaggeration of faces even more dramatically. There are areas that respond to uh, the body. There are areas that respond to motion. And there are areas that respond to all kinds of motions, but there's an area that responds only to bodily motion, only to biological motion. So you had specific recruitment of bodily motions when you see somebody moving their arms, moving their hands, moving their legs. And uh, for example, people with autism cannot tell the difference between motion and bodily motion. Yeah. Uh, so they don't respond to bodily motion effectively because it's a social gesture. Well, we can, people who are not autistic, can respond to it, and that becomes part of our response to it. In your chapter on unconscious emotion, uh, you write about the James Lang idea of feeling being the direct consequence of information sent from the body to the cerebral cortex. Uh, Walter Cannon comes along, he introduces fight or flight, then there are more innovations through cognitive psychology. Uh, then you have Hugo Critchley. And there's a return to this James Lang theory. That's right. So the James Lang theory is basically right. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, where is science now in relation to James Lang, and how much do we presently understand of the insula, that area of the brain where our emotions are represented? I think we understand it reasonably well. I mean, we do have an automatic response to a frightening stimulus or to an erotic stimulus, and only with some slight delay does a conscious processing of that come to mind. And part of that conscious processing is the bodily response to the autonomic signals that were simulated by the emotionally charged object. And we interpret that in part because different emotionally charged stimuli evoke different autonomic responses, but even more because the social context influences very much how we interpret the same signal. So it's almost like ambiguity in odds. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's commonly the case that um, we use our previous knowledge in a top-down way to interpret this. This is something that Helmholtz first pointed out, and you see this beautifully uh, here. Sure. Um, you bring up another interesting question late in the book. Does art have universal functions and features? Um, is there some uniform biology of the mind that causes us to react to art? You cite in the book the philosopher Dennis Dutton, he identifies two views, the mind as a blank slate, where we learn our response to art and put it on, on that. And then also more interestingly, the arts are not a byproduct of evolution, but an instinctive evolutionary trait. So how does any theory of the mind back this idea of the universal artistic reaction up? Well, I mean, there is no scientific explanation for yeah. it. It's just whenever you look at any civilization, any culture, it's had art. Since art is not essential for survival in any conventional sense, you, you don't need it for food and you don't need it for protecting yourself against enemies, there must be some inner need that art fulfills that is universal. You find it wherever you go. So it seems to have some evolutionary advantage. Yeah. Uh, Arthur Schnitzler and his interior monologues, uh, his fiction permitted the reader to enter an entirely new perspective permitting his readers to inhabit another mind through these monologues. Now, a form of evolutionary adaptation that you could actually cite this to prepare us for future dangerous situations. Now, this was very intriguing to me. Can art be on the same evolutionary level as the opposable thumb? Or? Well, I mean, uh, 
Perhaps. I mean, I wouldn't think of it that way, but it certainly is something that is uh, characteristic of Homo sapiens. Uh, apparently, Neanderthal men did not, as far as one know, have art. It's interesting because they were contemporaneous for a while. Um, so there must be some. Uh, I, I think of it a little bit in parallel to religion. Yeah. Uh, I mean, every group has had some religious belief that binds the group together. It may be a way of handling concern about death, which we know is inevitable. Uh, you know, frightening events that are too difficult to handle. We handle with, you know, developing a mythology around it. I don't mean mythology in a derogatory sense, a way of dealing with that. And art allows us to explore aspects of the universe that we would never explore otherwise, to have erotic interactions, to have aggressive interactions, to see parts of the country that we would never see. So it gives us a freedom to explore both imaginatively and, and visually things that we would not do otherwise. Sure. Stephen Kuffler performed experiments on retinal ganglion cells and he discovered that there were these on-center neurons and these off-center neurons which responded more to contrast than these hard lights and these hard darks. So there's also the optical illusion of mock bands where the eye perceives lines of contrast when you have a dark patch next right. to a light patch. So how does this understanding of contrast work in relation to, say, the infamous Dalmatian illusion, which you also include in the book? If we can detect the contours of an outline of an image and we fill in the gaps through this top-down processing, which you were mentioning earlier, how does contrast pose a problem for the brain along these lines? Uh, contrast doesn't pose a problem. Yep. We use contrast because it allows us to see you know, differences between an object and the background more clearly. That's what the brain is designed to do. Uh, and the reason a Dalmatian dog is difficult at the beginning is there ain't much contrast. So you have to become familiar with it in order to build in your own perception of that outline. Yeah. Sure. Ramachandran has this idea known as the peak shift principle. Where, yeah. You know, yeah. The stimuli yeah. we were talking about. That are exaggerated. Exaggeration, distortion. Um, you also bring up the Susan Carey, Rhea Diamond idea of configurational information. This Gestaltian notion that the brain uses parts based information to perceive faces. So if the brain responds best to parts or exaggeration, how does a brain reconcile, say, a realist painter like Courbet with a symbolist painter like Klimt? So does it take something like, you know, Velasquez's Las Meninas, which you also have in the book, in which the artist is the central figure of the painting, and you have this well-placed mirror which offers this point of ambiguity uh, for the beholder to find some sort of compromise between something that's fixed and something that's more illusory, or what of this? I mean, you know, the, the reason art is so fantastic is because an artist can have uh, different talents, different skills, which nonetheless will appeal to the same viewer. I mean, Las Meninas is great in part because of its symbolic value. Yes. It's the first painting that says, you know, the reason I paint myself, the artist, yeah. in the center of the painting is because I'm the guy who did this thing. Yeah. I'm really the master of the scene. Uh, and also to use mirrors in order to show you that there is illusion involved in art. Uh, so there is a lot of sort of historical creativity in that. Um, so, realism has a lot of merit to it, depending on what it shows you. Yes. Uh, so there are many ways of creating a great work of art. Abstract art has, you know, you know, need not have any necessary exaggeration. It's just pleasing to look at combinations of colors, combinations of textures, um, you know, the uh, spiritual quality of abstract painting sometimes can be quite wonderful. Yeah. Sure. 
you've um, pointed out a few times, and at the end of this book, that reductionist approach, approaches to science, uh, along the lines of what you know, Gombrich and William Harvey have presented, are sometimes necessary to understanding the biology of the brain. Uh, you know, just from a scientific standpoint, how do you reconcile reductionism with the more complex questions that are still in play? as we speak. Well, I mean, reductionism is an approach that yeah. is one approach among many. You ultimately have to synthesize. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm a reductionist, so to speak. I wanted to study learning and memory, and I decided, you know, that's a very complicated problem. Maybe I'm best off using a very simple case of learning and memory, of the kind that Pavlov studied, understanding that first, and then going on to study more complex problems. But I did go on to study more complex problems, and most people, use reductionism in order to get going and then elaborate from that. Well, Eric Candle, thanks so much for your time. It's a pleasure to chat and uh, best of luck. Thank you. Okay.